This morning, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, and I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles there. Um, last week, Pastor John took us through uh, the last part of chapter 10 of Mark, and you may recall uh, the story of Bartimaeus and, and uh, how, the, how the Lord Jesus touched him after he yell, yelled out to him, he called him son of David, and we recognize that moniker, that name, uh, as specifically re um, related to who the Messiah is, who, who the Messiah is identified to be as the son of David. Um, it's interesting that in that context, um, there were a lot of people also gathered around. You remember last week, John spoke about that. The reality, too, is that it's not just because of Jesus' popularity, but this actually is the season of pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover. And that's what's going on. That's part of the reason there are so many people around Jesus there in Jericho when, when he healed Bartimaeus. Um, so they, they hike up to Jerusalem and uh, arrive uh, in this place uh, called Bethany. And Bethany is a small town outside of Jerusalem on the backside of of the uh, Mount of Olives. I think we have a map here. Um, you can see off to the far right there is Bethany. And uh, between Bethany and uh, the city of Jerusalem, and most specifically the temple, is the Mount of Olives. It's not a, it's not a real high mountain. It's a, it's a relatively short mountain, but it's, it's there. And enough that the path to the temple goes around the mountain, and on the way we have the the little uh, village of Bethphage, and uh, and then, as you can see, the 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 line there shows the pathway that Jesus took into the eastern gate of the temple area. So um, that's where we are uh, in the scripture this morning. Um. Let's, let's begin with verse 1. And as they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, what are you doing untying that colt? You're not from here. What are you doing? <laughs> And they spoke to them, and just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he, he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches and spread, spread them which they had cut from the fields. 
Those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming king of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. We know this story to be that of the triumphal entry. That's what we have labeled it in in our Christian tradition because indeed it is the entry of a king into the city. Now, it's, it's interesting that, uh, again, Bethany and Bethphage are, are part of this, this uh, 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 story as it's related to us. Uh, you'll note that they're Bethany and Bethphage both have the same prefix, B-E-T-H in, in English. Um, there's another famous small town um, that also has has that. Do you remember that? Bethlehem, Bethlehem right, yeah. And, and what does that mean? Well, that word, or that little prefix, Beth, as we say it, Beit is, is actually how the, the Hebrews would say it. Uh, Bethlehem is, is uh, it means house or dwelling. And so, we know, uh, you may have heard that Bethlehem means house of bread. It's kind of interesting. Jesus reveals himself as the bread of life. Um, and that's where he was born. Well, Bethany is house of affliction. It's curious, isn't it? Bethphage means house of green figs or yet not ripe figs. And we will see after this passage that we just read the significance of that name. Now, uh, I think it's important for us to understand that the, the context of the calendar here. Jesus uh, arrives there in Bethany six days prior to the Passover. We know that specifically because John records that in chapter 12 of his gospel. It was six days prior to the Passover that he arrived there in Bethany, and he arrived at the home of, who do you remember lives in Bethany? Not Jesus, no. His very good friends, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Lazarus has a unique story to tell, doesn't he? Do you remember? He was raised from the dead by Jesus himself. And so we're, here we are, six days before the Passover in Bethany at the home of these people whom Jesus touched dramatically. They've seen his miracle working power firsthand. Now, um, they are on their way now to Jerusalem. Verse 2, and Jesus says to his disciples, go into the village opposite you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there. And he gives very specific, detailed instruction. Jesus personally supervises this particular piece of 
of their life together. And it's, it's kind of unusual because in many circumstances, when Jesus was entering a, a place, a city or whatever, he kind of left the details up to his disciples. But here he is very, very specific. Mark, along with Matthew and Luke, record the details uh, in a very specific manner as preparations for Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And the big question that comes to my brain is, why? Why, why these iconic details that are, that are written out so specifically? Jesus orchestrated this event, it seems. But he did so not for his own sake, but for the sake of others who would later critically analyze this event. The reason they would do that is because he's being hailed as the son of David, which means the Messiah. And there are specific prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of him in this way. Zechariah in particular, and Jesus recognizes the significance of this moment. Um, John mentions the, the connection to Zechariah 9 very, very specifically. Verse 9 in particular, uh, Matthew records in, in chapter 21, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. More specifically, let's look right at Zechariah's prophecy. Chapter 9, verse 9 of Zechariah reads this way, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and he is endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Take note of the description of this king. He's just and endowed with salvation. He's just, that word means he's lawful, he's righteous as a person, but he's also righteous in, in his government, how he manages things. He's right in his cause. He is righteous in his conduct and his character. And more specifically, he is righteous because he's justified. He's vindicated by God himself. Now, the words endowed with salvation actually is one word in Hebrew. It's yasa. And it means to open wide, to, to free. It's kind of like opening a prison door. Open it wide and free the captive. It also includes this idea of rescue and not just rescue, but defense or, or preservation of that freedom. So we don't not only get the freedom and the salvation delivered to us, but it's also the Lord's defense of that freedom. You know, there are those who, who wonder, am I saved? 
I went to the altar. I raised my hand. Am I really, am I still saved? You know, salvation is God's gift to us. It's not what we earn. And because it's God's gift, it's his to do with what he wants to. And what we have here is a description of the fact that salvation is something that God cares for. He is not going to give it and then take it away. It is a permanent thing. He delivers it to us and we delight in it forever because it's his gift to us. Now, it's important to recognize too that these words just and endowed with salvation are not, they're, they're not just characteristics of, of this king, but they're actual pieces of his identity. Your king is justice. He is the fulfillment, the satisfaction of the law. Your king is salvation. He is the rescue from all that imprisons us. And he is also the preservation of that freedom. That's his identity. It's, the, it's along the same vein of when Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He himself is the way. He's not just showing the way. He himself is the way. We've talked about that previously. There's this great theological word that the Apostle Paul uses, the propitiation for our sin. It's the embodiment of, it is the fact that Jesus is himself our salvation. Jesus knows in this moment that the leadership that he establishes on his entry into Jerusalem will affect everything that he says and does from that moment on until the end of this, his last week on earth as merely, no, not merely, as a man, but not merely a man. So much more than that, because we know that he is indeed God and man in one. And so it's with precision that he walks his disciples through the details. The details of the preparation. Find a colt, the colt of a donkey, untie it, assure the owner that he'll be properly returned, and, and bring him this animal that's never been sat upon before. And John records in chapter 12 that all of these details were not understood by the disciples at, the, at that time. He says, these things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. I'd like for us to take a moment and, and maybe this is point number one. Make certain that you understand that sometimes the Lord will direct us to do things that we don't completely understand at that moment. But later we will see his hand at work accomplishing his purposes, maybe even without our awareness, maybe even in spite of our lack of understanding or even our resistance 
to his plan. In the end, what really matters in those moments is the result. I'd like to say it's the fruit that matters in that moment. Oswald Chambers, you know by now that that I enjoy reading his devotionals. It just so happens that Valentine's Day of this week, he, uh, he, he wrote these words. At times, God puts us through the discipline of darkness to teach us to heed him. Songbirds are taught to sing in the dark, and we are put into the shadow of God's hand until we learn to hear him. Watch where God puts you into the darkness. And when you are there, keep your mouth shut. You are in the dark just now in your circumstances. Are you in the dark just now in your circumstances or in your life with God? When you are in the dark, listen. Listen, and God will give you a very precious message for someone else when you get into the light. And here is a second thing for us to etch down this morning. God's plans for us are seldom just for us. Think about it. They are part of his purposes that very often go way beyond, far beyond our personal circumstances. We tend, and it's, it's, almost, it's normal, We tend to operate with the thought that God's forgiveness or God's attention, his involvement with us is just for us. But his involvement with us is indeed personal. But the purpose of his investment in our personal lives goes way beyond the limits of just our little world. I don't know about you, but that causes me to be pretty sober about the things that God speaks to me. It's not just for me. We all have people that we touch. We all have families that we engage with. What God speaks to us will impact them as well. Let's go on. Verse 4. And they went away and found the colt tied at the door. (laughs) And at the end of that, there in verse 6, it says that uh, they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them. And they gave permission. It's interesting. (laughs) Just as Jesus had told them. And here's another thing to etch down for us. If we will do as Jesus tells us, we can expect that God's purpose will be accomplished in and through our obedience to him. If we follow the instructions, we can expect the outcome to be what God designed. His design, quite honestly, may not always be our design. How many of you have experienced that? Yeah. But his design will always accomplish his purposes. 
And here again, it's the fruit that matters. It's the outcome that matters. So verse 7, they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it. The, the disciples throw their coats on the unbroken foal as, as a makeshift, I guess, shat, uh, saddle of sorts. And the procession moves into the eastern gate of the temple grounds. And the people begin to follow, they, and they, they even gather people as they go. And we could say in very real detail, it's kind of a prophetic providence that begins to take place as they break out with this response that's fitting for a king, a victorious king entering his city. Clothes are strewn on the paths and, and palm leaves are, are cut off and thrown on the ground before him. They're waving them and they break out in this impromptu chorus. And I, I can only think that it was probably or could have been even antiphonal. What, what does that mean? It means that this group is saying this and this group is saying that. They're all saying, Hosanna. Hosanna, this side says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this side, blessed is he who is coming, the coming, uh, the coming in the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Matthew records these words, Hosanna to the son of David. Hmm. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The son of David moniker again, along with he who comes in the name of the Lord, both of them reflect the identity of the Messiah. The Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a direct quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. I'd like for us to look at that. In fact, I'd encourage you, turn there, if you will, in your Bibles. It'll also be on the screen. But I, I want you to, to take note of this. This is a messianic psalm of thanksgiving for God's provision. Beginning in verse 19, we read, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. It makes my mind go directly to John chapter 10, where, where Jesus speaks of him, himself as the good shepherd. And there he reveals in, in verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. This is the gate of the Lord. Back in Psalm 118, the righteous will enter through it. Think about it. I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. He goes on in verse 22. Again, note that this particular section will be quoted by Jesus specifically in chapter 12 of Mark. That's coming up. 
The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day of the Lord that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then we have these words in verse 25. O Lord, do save. We beseech you. Do save. And it's really interesting that that word, do save, is the exact same root as the word in Zechariah 9. It means to save, to open wide, to set free, and then to preserve that freedom. We beseech you. Interesting, because in Hebrew, that word is ana. And it means, now, now, do save now. And that indeed is what the word Hosanna means. Save now. Yasa'ana. Yasa'ana. Liberate, rescue, save now. Yasa'ana became Hoshiana, which becomes Hosanna in the day of Jesus. And by that time, by that time, the word Hosanna was, was regarded as just an exaltation of praise to God, Hosanna, but at the root of it, we understand the meaning to be save now. The second half of verse 25 there in Psalm 18 is, O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. And then 26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's, that's what this, this group is bringing out to Jesus. Save now. We recognize you as Messiah. Save us now. It's interesting, look back in Mark. I'm assuming you've kept your thumb there. Back in Mark, verse 9, the latter half of that, those who went in front and those who followed were shouting. You see, this, this crowd that was around Jesus was likely, it included those who've been traveling with him, even maybe all the way from Jericho. And it is, they are joined by the people there in the temple courts. And it's, it's, it's this same crowd or members thereof, maybe not, maybe not the entire crowd, but I, I think it's fair to say that some of those in that crowd will be also in the crowd at the end of the week who will be shouting, crucify him. Here, their identification of Jesus as the son of David is evidence. It is unmistakable evidence that they see him as Messiah, the promised one, the coming one, who would establish his earthly kingdom right then and there. And quite honestly, it's, it's not unreasonable to get that grip on that because even the disciples, after Jesus rose from the dead, 
in Acts chapter 1, we read that they were expecting him to set up his earthly kingdom right then and there. If the word Hosanna is more than an exclamation of praise, it is certainly this cry to the king of kings, save us now, we beg you, save us now. And Bartimaeus called out to Jesus as the son of David, and he asked for help, he asked for mercy. But here these, the crowd saying the same words, and unfortunately history will, will soon report that unlike Bartimaeus, whose blindness was taken away, this crowd's blindness will remain. The Pharisees took note Pharisees took note of, of the theological implications of what is going on here. In Luke chapter 19, he records, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They recognized that what was happening is they were acknowledging Jesus as Messiah. But Jesus answered and said to them, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones themselves will cry out. All of this, all of this is why Jesus takes such, gives such personal attention to the details of preparing for this entry in Jerusalem. It's interesting that the symbol of the foal of a donkey is this, that he predicts his role as a king who comes into his city with dignity and peace. Roman Christians, to whom Mark is likely writing this gospel, would recognize the, the incredible contrast between what happens with Jesus and what happens with the Caesar of the day, returning from a battle, returning from war, entering the city with with great pageantry, seated on a white horse and parading through the city with his soldiers behind and behind them, guess who's there? The victims of the bloody conquest that he has just accomplished. Prisoners chained, slaves now subservient to the Caesar. But by choosing to make his triumphal entry on a donkey, Jesus gives us the symbol of his prophetic future. He comes in peace, not war. He conquers by his spirit, not by the sword. His triumph displays his humility, not his pride. And behind him, this beautiful picture. Behind him comes an entourage of his disciples, this motley crowd of, of common people who he has healed and set free, 
I can only imagine Lazarus was a part of that crowd. Those who've been raised from the dead. This, this crowd are not captives and slaves, but rather they are trophies of the grace of God. The Apostle Paul writes of this image in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says, But each to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. You see, Jesus is absolutely certain of his identity. He is Messiah. And he is dedicated to the details of displaying that identity. Understand that. He is dedicated to the details of displaying his identity as Messiah, including our lives. We are the trophies we are the trophies of his grace. And he is dedicated to the details of the display of his identity, yes, even in our lives. And here again, it's the fruit that matters. Let's talk a little more about fruit. Verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the 12, since it was already late. Jesus scopes out the temple. And it's only Mark who is clear that Jesus goes in without incident into the temple at the end of the day and makes this preliminary inspection. And after surveying the situation, Jesus leaves the city and goes back to Bethany, where he honestly probably stays at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus again. This detail that's recorded by Mark may very well be Peter's remembrance of, of the situation. In the other Gospels, it's, it's overshadowed by the magnitude of what happens the next day in the in the the cleansing of the temple. But this detail reveals that Jesus did not sleep in Jerusalem. Why did he not sleep there? Well, Jerusalem was crowded, for sure, but it was also crowded full of his enemies. Bethany was a welcoming place, a safe place. Yes, probably crowded with pilgrims as well, but it was a safe place. Verse 12, on the next day, presumably Monday, when they, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing that a, at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And Mark records, and his disciples were listening. You know, this incident, 
is curious. It's the source of bewilderment for a lot of people. <laughs> it just doesn't seem, it comes out of nowhere. What is going on? Jesus is going back to Jerusalem on the next day and hunger prompts him to look for uh, early fruit on a fig tree. Some scholars read it only as a parable. And quite honestly, all of them admit it's really hard to make sense of this. It's fair to say that presumably Jesus was hoping for some small early figs. Curious. What's the name of this little town? House of early figs. Yeah. Early figs. Jesus was probably looking for some early ripe figs that ripen with the leaves before the main, the main crop is harvested. And they are considered a delicacy because there, there's not many of them. Note that Mark says, if perhaps. It suggests that finding figs was only an unlikely possibility contemplated by Jesus. He was honestly likely not surprised that the tree did not have fruit on it. But we have to take note that figs have have a unique and special meaning in the Old Testament prophecy. They symbolize the fruit of spiritual fulfillment um, based upon Israel's promise of God's blessing in their lives. Yet most, and most frequently in prophecy, figs represent apostasy as a result, all the more tragic because of unfulfilled promises. And finding nothing but leaves on the promising fig tree, Jesus turns his disappointment into judgment. Even as the prophet Isaiah predicted, or excuse me, Jeremiah predicted. Like a fig tree, Israel had been chosen as God's people and blessed beyond measure. Yet they turned away from God over and over and over again. Jeremiah chapter 8. Again, I'd, I'd encourage you to turn there if you like. It will also be on the screens. But Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 8, we read beginning in verse 4. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, do men fall and not get up again? Does one turn away and not repent? Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit, and they refuse to return. And then in verse 18, Jeremiah, the voice of the Lord, says, I will surely snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither. And what I have given them will pass away. Jesus notes the, the early leaves as promising fruit in Mark chapter 13, speaking of his return 
in glory. There in Mark 13, he says, now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that the summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize he is near, right at the door. Okay, so what really happens here? This this experience is kind of an enigma in many ways. A combination of Micah's prophecy and Mark's gospel shed some light on our dilemma. Um, Prophetically, Micah hears the Messiah say these words, my soul desires first ripe fruit. Again, Micah chapter 7. I invite you to turn there if you want. Micah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Woe is me. He says, I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig, which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land and there is no upright person among them. Mark has Jesus seeing the leaves on the fig tree and going over to it to see if perhaps, perhaps if he would find something to eat on it. And on the basis of what Jesus sees in the maturity of the leaves, they are out in full force. He has reason to expect that there might be some first ripe fruit with which to satisfy his hunger. I think it's important here to understand that what's going on here is that Jesus judges the fig tree not so much for the lack of fruit, but for the pretense of the leaves. Hypocrisy is more than than trying to be something you're not. It's also failing to produce what you promise. Today we have, we have plenty of showiness going on when it comes to Christian spirituality. You don't have to go far to look for it. And yet there is the depth and the the value of that show is actually, again, under the show, behind the show. It's the fruit that matters. You can communicate with lots of style. You can raise your hands and even dance in the aisles as a worshiper. But... If it lacks substance, it's nothing but show. You can have the trappings of piety, but be completely spiritually destitute. The proof of one's spiritual integrity 
The proof of one's spiritual integrity is the fruit of your life. What, what's left in the wake? What's left behind you? As you walk through life, what do you see? Do you see casualties of anger or, or manipulation? Or do you see blessing and fulfillment? Is, is the wake of your life what's left behind the fruit of the Spirit? Is it love? Is it joy? Is it peace? Or patience? Wow, that's a hard one, isn't it? Is it... Is it kindness? Is it goodness? Is it gentleness? Is the wake in the wake of your life, do people see self-control? Jesus calls each one of us out here and is clearly saying it's the fruit that matters. Spiritual flash without spiritual fruit speaks of immaturity at best. And at worst, it speaks of fraudulent faith. It's the fruit that matters. Leaves are a sad substitute for fruit. Whether we're talking about figs or we're talking about Pharisees. Or any who have style without substance, flashy faith without the fruit of the Spirit. Why does Jesus leave us with this last display of his miracle power and authority? It seems unthinkable. And the, it's, a, it's a picture of judgment. Israel was chosen by divine appointment. Given God's law, protected from annihilation, led into a new land, disciplined in exile, blessed beyond measure. Stands at the center of the world as the source of God's redemptive hope. But instead of fulfilling hope and by accepting Jesus as the Messiah, God's own people counter his coming with this rigid display of empty rituals, of human, human interpretations and meaningless symbols. And the righteousness, the righteousness and the holiness of God calls for a severe judgment on the other side of what can only be described as long-suffering love. Even here, Jesus chooses a fig tree. He chooses a fig tree to speak of these things rather than pronouncing a curse on people. His Long-suffering love is displayed yet again here. 
as spiritually barren as Israel had proved to be, one more warning was given right here. A fig tree with nothing but leaves remains as a grim reminder of Jesus as the the Lord of judgment as well as the Lord of life. So what's our takeaway here? Let's think back. Sometimes the Lord will direct us to do things that we may not really understand at the moment, but later we will see that his hand is accomplishing his purposes without our awareness. Sometimes in spite of our lack of understanding, yes, maybe even in spite of our resistance to his plan, he is working it out. And it's the fruit that matters. It's the outcome that matters. God's plans for us are seldom simply for us. They are part of his purposes that go far beyond our own personal circumstances. And again, it's the fruit that matters. If we will do as Jesus tells us, if we follow his instructions, we, inspe- we can expect that God's purpose will be accomplished both in and through our obedience. His design may not be our design, but it will accomplish his purposes. Again, it's the outcome. It's the fruit that matters. Jesus is certain of his identity. He is Messiah. And he's dedicated to the details that display his identity, including our lives. We are trophies of his grace. And when it comes to our lives, it's the fruit that matters. And because it is the proof of one's spiritual integrity the fruit of our lives. Spiritual flash without spiritual fruit. At a minimum, it's the the, uh, display of spiritual immaturity. At a maximum, it speaks of fraudulent faith. Again, it's the fruit, the fruit that matters. And this morning, I think we need, we're all called to this place of introspection. (laughs) Inspect the tree, Lord. Here I am. What kind of fruit do you see? And allow him to teach us. Teach us as individuals. Teach us as a fellowship. What is the fruit? Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. I'm not going to ask the worship team to come because it's already 1030. But I do want us to ask the Holy Spirit to do his good work in our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord, this morning, we thank you that 
when you look upon us, yes, you look upon us with long-suffering love. And we pray that when you lift up the leaves and look, inspect our lives, what you would find would be good fruit. If there is no fruit, or if there's even rotten fruit, Lord, we ask that you would intervene by your grace and change the outcome. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation in you is secure, that we need not worry about that. But we do invite you to do your transformative work in us. We would say together this morning, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. You are welcome to move in our lives and reveal what's really there. I thank you, Lord, that we do not need to walk into that inspection fearful. Even if we know that the fruit that, that's, that, that will be found is not so good. Because we also know, Jesus, that you are, you are the Lord of transformation. And we invite you to do that in our lives, even today. We thank you for your grace in that. We thank you for your grace. Help us hear your voice. Help us walk in your ways. Do your transformative work, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.